morning again. Welcome everyone. We are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 5 through 11. Nehemiah 5 through 11. And just as a note of our missionary in focus, Mohan, if you would like to be a part of his monthly reports, you can email me at pastorfefc at gmail.com or just use the website and I will send it to you. We don't like to put it public out on our list because there's lots of persecution and we try to you know, protect that as much as possible. So let's jump in and then we will do a little review and then we will jump into the actual text. So <clears throat> Nehemiah 9, 5. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaliah, and said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever. <clears throat> now they are about to uh, step into this covenantal oath with God to promise that they're never going to do any of these bad things ever again. And um, this is how they begin this oath. They say, May, oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bow down, bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him. You gave him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite to give it to his descendants and you have fulfilled this promise for you are righteous. Verse nine, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone raging, uh, stone into raging waters. So that is our text for today. I don't know about you, but have you ever been born again, again? I don't know if that's ever happened. I don't know if you ever heard that sort of concept. I have. I've felt born again, again, many times throughout my journey with Christ. I think the most time, a significant time that I felt that way was when I was discovering new truths about God. It's not like God was resaving me, but you find out a new truth about God and your eyes just open up and you flood back to all the scriptures and floods forward and you're like, wow, this makes sense. And so just, it's, a, it's a great, great time. <clears throat> a new realized truth opened up to me so clearly, it was back in 2007, when I understood God's sovereign grace over my life. I, I've heard about it, 
I knew about it, but I never really understood the depths of it until I read this book by Chuck Smith called When Grace Changes Everything. And I would highly recommend that book. It's an incredible encouragement. And then after that, I began to search the scriptures. I studied again through the Old and New Testaments, and I saw that God's sovereign grace is infused into every aspect of his dealing with humanity. I then went on a sovereign grace headhunt. All I listened to were songs about his grace. I read every book about his grace, and I shared with everyone his grace and became a sovereign grace snob. I even fought to name my daughter Grace. My wife met me halfway and we named her Leah Grace. Sorry, I'm talking about you every sermon, honey. Which to this day, I make sure everyone knows her full name because she was born right at the time that this happened back in 2008 when I had gone through. I wanted to name her Grace, but we named her Leah Grace as her first name. Now, I call her Gracie and Everybody else pretty much does in the family, so I feel like I've won that victory. (laughs) So since then, I've had a better balance of this and of grace and his sovereign grace. But however you want to shape it, the end result is always that God's sovereign grace is unavoidable if you go through the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures, and most important, it's the core and the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no excuse for us not to know about and believe it for our salvation and beyond and to live out our lives on the grounds of this grace, on the grounds of this gospel of grace, the sovereignty of God that's found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is something that I highly encourage you to meditate on and search the scriptures and truly realize what it means. And as we're going to go through today's message, we're going to bring some of those things out. So in our text today in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 5 to 11, again, this is just a small portion of this two or three page covenant that they, that they wrote. All of chapter 9 is basically uh, the covenant. And then chapter 10 is the oath that they took to obey the covenant. And they all signed, they had hundreds sign it. And so, excuse me, we see in this text that God's sovereign grace once again jumps out at us on almost every line. But the big question is, is why didn't the Levites who were in charge of this quote unquote covenant treaty oath that they were taking, why didn't they see this as much as we can see it now? Why didn't they see the aspect of God's sovereign grace before going ahead and making promises on top of promises that their forefathers could never keep and they themselves couldn't keep. The most ironic thing is that all the covenants that are given to the people of God through scripture come from God. They don't come from us. We can't say to God, God, listen, let's make a deal. I'll do this and then you do that. All right, I'm going to write it out for you and I want you to sign. That doesn't happen. But ultimately, that's sort of the sense of what Nehemiah 9 and 10 are about. Them taking it on their own, they're back in the the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, the temple's rebuilt, 
There's community now in Jerusalem. They're getting excited, but they were convicted when they opened up God's word and they looked at it line by line, verse by verse to understand the sense and the meaning of the word. It brought conviction of sin. And this is what we have to be so careful about that when we get convicted by sin, God cares more about us coming to him, coming to him in humility, coming to him in confession and brokenness and giving our life over to him more than he cares about. Well, actually, he doesn't necessarily care about what, he th- what we think we could do in our own strength. So we can't go that route. <clears throat> now, they were bound to fail again. Not only that they made this covenant again, but if you go back to Ezra chapter 9, you'll see that they made this covenant 10 years before, and they all failed. And then if you go to Malachi, well, in, well, first, at the end of Nehemiah, you will see about 15 years later, they fail again. And then if you read the book of Malachi, who was the prophet during this time, they failed even worse. They brought, he brings out sins that, they, that are not even mentioned. So this did not work. It does not work when we depend on our own strength before the Lord. So what did they miss? Let's, let's look at that. Well, first, I, I want to see, I want to explain to you, and I don't mean to overstate and restate the obvious, but I want to really make sure we all understand what sovereign grace really means before we go and expound this text. First of all, sovereign grace means, well, really, let's start with the word sovereignty. God is sovereign. You've heard that before, right? It means that God is the supreme ruler who has the ultimate power in salvation in his, all of his dealings with creation, especially with sinners. He is supreme over us. He has supreme power over our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification. He has supreme power over all things, all people. Everything is in his hands. That's what sovereignty means. It's in his control, not ours. And it's not a, that's not a negotiable thing. It's not like he's in charge sovereignly over only over the big important stuff and he leaves the little stuff for us to sort of make our own decisions. We think and we are, we are in God's will. The Holy Spirit's working in us, but God is working in us so that we can produce the outcome according to his sovereign will. So now what is God's grace? Well, it's much more than just unmerited favor or undeserved favor. Because that's really the shorthand way of saying it. Look, you're, you're not getting what you deserve. And so it's much more than that. God's grace means God's life, God's power, God's spirit, God's righteousness is all given to us in Christ without us having to do anything. It's a free gift. Let me just let that sink in. God's life, which could, make, which could mean his spirit, God's power, power to overcome sin, power to do the works of the Lord, his righteousness, we are given a righteous status before God. An, uh, it's a judicial word, the word righteousness, diakosine, and that's one of eight different ways to describe the word. 
But this means righteousness that's from God, that's given to us, not as a as something that's infused in us, but as a status. Okay, so we are not guilty before God. We've went to court for that, all of the sins that we've ever had, past, all the sins that we are doing right now, present, and all the sins that we will commit in the future. As hard as that, as hard as that is for me to say from a pastoral perspective with the risk of you thinking that I'm saying it's this free grace that you could just do whatever you want. No, that's not how grace works. If you're truly saved by grace, you are going to be sensitive to sin. You will hate your sin and you will cling more and more to God's grace to get you through. It's not that you will go out and say, woo, woo, I got God's grace. Yeah, I can do this. I can do that. It's no problem because I'm saved. I know I can go to God later. I'll sort of act a little, you know, broken about this sin now, but later I'll go to God and we'll take care of anything, but I'm jumping in. That's, that's not what we're to do. <clears throat> so what then is God's sovereign grace? It's his supreme <clears throat> gift of grace operating in us by his Holy Spirit. And what it does, his sovereign grace regenerates us, sanctifies us, gives us strength to endure trial, it gives us strength to endure difficulties, and it gives us strength to endure temptation. See, temptation, people, is not sin. If you're tempted and you turn, that's not sin. Don't go to God and say, Lord, I'm so sorry I was even considering that. Just say, praise you, Lord, for delivering me from that temptation. Don't worry and focus on the negative there. Paul testifies to God's sovereign grace and its power in Ephesians 3, 1 to 3, and seven, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you, Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. When he says the mystery, he means the gospel. As I wrote before in brief, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So here we see the power, sovereign power, sovereign grace working together. And so how are we to live in light of this sovereign grace? Well, like Paul, every second, according to the working of his sovereign power, we must place utter all dependence on Christ and his grace. Everything. Nothing is hidden. No small thing, no big thing, no situation. Always entrusted to him. <clears throat> How do we know we are walking in God's sovereign grace? Well, <clears throat> when we feel unworthy, when we feel disgusting, when we feel we failed God again and again and again, we never put the blocker up we still, are, we still give that consent to be loved by him. When we feel unworthy, we say, Lord, I am not going to focus on that. I'm going to come into your throne room and receive that grace. That's so hard in our human flesh because <clears throat> we all are infused with a works-based mentality. And our whole society is based off of a works-based mentality. If you go to anyone in society and say you go to church, oh, that is so good. 
It's so great that you go to church. You know, I have to go. I haven't been going to church, but I used to go to church and my mother went to church. And I always love that because I say, you know what? It's really not a church is just an expression. You know, if, if I love God and he gave, he saved me. And now I want to go worship him with his people. I just want to worship him. And that's what this is about. This church is about worshiping God. Everything we do is a form of worship. Our giving, our reading, our singing, our praying, our fellowship. We're here worshiping in that spirit. So when we feel unworthy, I want you to, when you feel unworthy, to run to the throne room of grace. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Don't say, well, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll get over this. This will be okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be fine. I, I asked God for forgiveness and I know he forgave me. Nope. I don't want you to settle with that. That's not, to me, that's going to fail. Go into his throne room rejoicing and praising him for the cross, for his blood. Covers your sins. That's what he wants us to do. And then we instantly get back up and move forward, forgetting what's behind and moving forward to what's ahead, as Paul says, to paraphrase. The other thing I think we have to do, and this is what Israel's doing in this passage, is we refuse to make promises or vows to God. Knowing this is to trust in our own strength. If you make a promise and a vow to God, you are trusting in your own strength. You are trusting in your ability. God, I promise I'll never do it again. God, I promise uh, I'm going to get myself right. God, I'm telling you right now, I'm never going to do that again. And if you do that in your own strength, you're just going to find ways to substitute things like that. If you're, if you're trying to get your life you know, right because you have some sort of behavior or pattern in your life, don't go to God and say, Lord, I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do this again. I'm just going to, I'm just going to trust in you. I'm never going to do it again. No, you don't want to do that. That's trusting in your own strength. You want to go to God Give that sin to him on the cross, put it at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I need you to change my heart. See, God loves that. He loves when you cry out to him in despair. He loves when you proclaim your inability because now you are agreeing with God. And now he has something to work with. Don't get me wrong. God's discipline is very gentle and very appropriate in most times. And we must receive it in love and in grace. Because he will discipline you. He will with his rod and staff of grace. It's amazing how he does. Oftentimes in the beginning, it's so gentle and it's so obvious. You know, it's like there's a sign here. I love you. I'm with you, but you need to stop. That's not the Lord. And then you open up a scripture and it's there. And then you talk to a friend and they're, you know, Sometimes they're counsel, I'm, I'm counseling with people and they're preaching to me. I'm like, you know what? That's amazing. That's encouraging, you know? Because I, re, I, I, just because you're in ministry doesn't mean you don't struggle with these things. I struggle with these things as well. And it's a discipline that I have to continue to develop over and over and over again. Not to be a better person and not to do this, but to trust and entrust myself more and more to God's sovereign grace. And I commit myself to that, not to a vow or to a oath or to a promise that I'm going to make him. And again, that's what they were doing here. They knew about God's sovereign grace, but they still trusted in their own strength. They didn't rest, trust, 
and then submit to God all the sins that they did and say, Lord, we are not going to move. We're not going to leave this, 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 this uh, state of prayer until you free us, Lord, until you enable us, God. We don't want to make the same mistake, Lord, by making promises and all these other things. We really want to be the light of the world now. We want to be the light of the world. They did not do that. Now, you may say, well, Pat, how did they, did they really know about God's sovereign grace? Well, yeah, look at the text. It shows us just how well they knew of it. Now, remember, I gave you guys some homework last week about learning about the preamble and learning about the covenant structure of the ancient Near East treaties. And we, we, we talked about all that. It's a good foundation. It was a difficult me message to get our hands around. But I encourage you, if you're serious about really understanding this, go back to that message and, and, and listen to it again and also uh, do the things that I had challenged you at the end. <clears throat> but if you did look at it, like I know most of you did, verse 5 starts what they call a preamble in a covenant. A preamble is basically who is writing to who on whose behalf. Now the Levites are writing to God. And do they acknowledge God's sovereignty? Yes, right in the very first verse here in, in verse five. May your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Lord. Now, usually in this preamble, they state what they call, uh, make a statement of undivided allegiance. And that's what they're saying here. Lord, we are committed fully to you as God. <clears throat> they claim this undivided allegiance by saying, you alone are the Lord. Now, when you see Lord in all caps, it is the name of Jehovah. And what that means is significant. It means the existing one. One who is sovereign over all from all eternity. As far back as you can go, as far forward as you can go, he is the existent one. He's always existed. Everybody understands how that works, right? It's very difficult to understand. I'm glad I can't understand it. Because if I knew how, how, how it worked, then I wouldn't believe in Jehovah. I wouldn't believe in the Lord. Because... If God was created, then whoever created him would be God. And then I'd have a bigger problem on my hands. But I know that the beginning of all, the existing one, Jehovah, he is sovereign. He is over all things because he is from eternity past and future and present and however you want to shape it. You see, when we truly understand God's sovereign grace, we will testify to his goodness at all times and in all situations, regardless of how difficult it will be. It's not easy to do this. It doesn't mean you're going to struggle. You're not going to struggle. I mean, it doesn't mean you're not going to have to walk through the muck and mire at certain points. You know, like if you're taking a hike, I, I, which I've never done. But if you if you walk, you know, I heard that, you know, there's difficult terrain. You walk through difficult terrain and then you get on the level ground for a while and then you, you know, you do it again. And so <clears throat> that is sort of how it is. But we're going in the direction of Christ's grace. Being angry at God will miss this point. Anger towards God will break you and harden you. Trusting in his sovereign grace over your life 
gives you freedom from the guilt of sin because you acknowledge who you truly are and who God truly is. See, if we know who truly, who true God is, like who he really is, we will know that we're not that. You see, we're sinful. We are sinners <clears throat> because we sin and we sin because we're sinners. And so that is so important to acknowledge. That right there, you know, if you like these, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I love to just find what, you know, what's the essence of the premise of one thing and I just like to focus on that. And so the essence of God's sovereign grace is knowing who truly Jehovah, the existent one, really is and really what the means and what's the, you know, what are the repercussions of that and know who you are and not trying to, to just accept it, you know? That's why I have a gray beard because I'm getting old and I'm embracing it. I am. For years, I don't want to try. I don't want to get old. I want to get old. Now I'm like, you know what? I'm old and it's cool. <laughs> and so you got to embrace who you are. Beyond cosmetically, I'm talking about spiritually. In your flesh, this is who we are. We are sinners and God is holy and just and righteous and love. Now we go to the next verse, you know, chapter verse six. Actually, we, we touched on this a little bit, but you alone are Lord. And then he starts to make some claims here. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bow down before you. And so from a covenantal treaty uh, structure here. This is the witness, the witnesses. We see this exactly in Deuteronomy 4. Moses calls as his witness heaven and earth against the people. But here, the people are calling heaven and earth as their witness for God. They understand it's God's sovereign grace who gives the blessing of life to sinful people. And it's called in certain areas, God's common grace. And, and this means that, you know, God's common grace is given to all people, even those that hate him. They gave, are able to breathe. They are able to eat. They can look outside and they can see the testimony of the creation. And that's what they're saying. We see the heavens. We see the earth. We, you are God. You are sovereign. You are the creator of all this. And you give it to everybody to see as a witness. No one has an excuse. You woke up today, you have food. You experience the beauty of God's creation. I hope you have a dog. Love a dog, love pet. I love dogs. And, and you know what? I love looking at my dog and saying, this is a blessing from God. The enjoyment I get from my dog. And I know a lot of you who have pets can feel the same way. Those little things testify to the witness. They witness to God's greatness and his power over all things. Now we get down to verse seven and there we have, we have now, we saw, so we saw the preamble, we saw the witnesses, and now we're going to get into usually what is the meat of most covenant treaties. And that is the historical background or the historical prologue. And this is where, the, where they cannot deny that they know about God's sovereign grace because they talk about the, the epitome of God's sovereign grace in the Old Testament. If you look it up in the dictionary, there's a picture of Abraham there. 
you know, hunched over with his wife, Sarah. No, they were in there. there and he was he was 100 and she was 90 or he was 95. She was 90. And they're just old. Right. And God chooses them. To make a covenant with. Why? Because he wanted to show his sovereign power over their life and his sovereign power in bringing the Christ, the Messiah, the king is going to come through their line. Not some strong, you know, Davidic character. Nope. He starts out just like Jesus came and started out humble. No, he was a pagan. He was from Ur of the Chaldees, pagan nation. And God, he said, I'm following the Lord. God called him. He said, well, wait, Lord, can you tell me everywhere I'm going to have to go? No, he just said, Abraham, come. And Abraham just took one step at a time. God's sovereign grace is almost always associated with his deliverance. This part here, when we look at Abraham, we, it jumps out of us. The sovereign grace of God, the deliverance of God through Abraham. But God's name change, notice in verse 7, it says, who chose Abraham, I'm sorry, Abram, and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. Why did he do that? The name change brings even more color to God's gracious deliverance and how it must be worked out with us, with our total trust in God. He says here, in, um, it says in Genesis 17, 5, after God made the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, or in that chapter, he makes the covenant with circumcision. He says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I had made you the father of a multitude of nations. And that's what Abraham means. Abram means exalted father. So he went from exalted father to this um, father of multitude, or some translations, the chief of the multitude. What about Sarah? Her name got, got changed. She wasn't always Sarah. She was Sarai. Sarai means princess, but Sarah means noble woman, as any 90-year-old pregnant woman should be called. Very noble. Imagine, right? This is like she laughed when, when she overheard God saying that she was going to have a child and through him would the seed come through. Not Ishmael, who would have been super easy. God went, Abraham went to him and said, Lord, can't we just do this through Ishmael and just get it over with? I mean, he's my son too. He goes, no, he's going to have a multitude, but the promise is going to come through Isaac. Now, what is the significance of this name change? Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. Well, if you look in the Hebrew, God added the Hebrew word ha, right? It's like breath. That's how you say it in the Hebrew. It's spelled H-A with a long A. He added this to both of their names. And if you look at what it's translated as in the Old Testament, it's translated as breath and spirit. So God gave them breath and spirit. Why? Because he called them to a great calling that he knew they could never do without his sovereign grace, without his working in them. He gives them his spirit and now their name is changed. And this is when God in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name, which is indicating that we are going to be transformed 
into that full spirit, physical spirit being. See, now we just have the inheritance of the spirit. We're still in our old bodies, but then we will have a new name that only we can understand. It's going to be a unique name. God gave them the breath or the spirit to accomplish and fulfill the covenant he made. So they knew in this chapter, at this point, who Abraham was, why the name was changed, and yet it still went over their head. God found his heart faithful, then gave him the spirit to walk with God and even be called a friend of God. And this is also offered to you and I through Jesus Christ. Pray for God's grace and faith in your life. Pray for a greater understanding of his grace and faith and walk by his grace in the spirit. Well, Pat, how do I really do that? How do I walk in the spirit? Is it a new sort of swag that I need to have? You know, should I, you know, walk or should I speak in King James language? Vows and and, and all those, you know, that's not what it's about. William Newell gives us a good suggestion in his essay on grace. I love this. He says, refuse to carry any burden for yourself. Refuse to carry any burden for yourself, but many burdens for others. Refuse to carry, I'm say it again, many burdens for yourself. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, not your own burdens. Don't focus on them. We may have to bear them, but we don't focus on them. We focus on others, and that's loving God in your neighbor. What must we do? Well, in layman's terms, get your eyes off of yourself. And I'm preaching that to me as well. Get your eyes off yourself. I don't like spending too much time in the mirror. I don't like sitting there staring at myself. Why? Because I become just, you know, I'm like, I get away from this. I don't want to keep looking at myself, looking at my imperfections. Oh man, my eyes are on myself. Translate that into everything in your life. I know that's hard, right? I'm not saying don't eat, don't, you know, take care of yourself. Of course we have to, we're, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Take care of your body. But when it comes to the burdens that you feel, you have to give them to God and don't go carry other burdens. Lay your life down as a burnt, a burnt offering. Paul was referring to this in Romans 12. A burnt offering disintegrates into nothing and is given to God as a sacrifice. Are you giving yourself as a burnt offering or are you giving yourself as a partial offering? Give it all to Christ. Give it all. Give him your all. Give him your very best. Don't sacrifice the blemished lamb. Give him the best lamb that you have in your flock. Then you will see what it's like to walk in sovereign grace. And of course, how do we walk in the spirit? Well, this is vividly given to us in Romans 8, 5, and 6. For those who are according to their flesh, set their minds on the thing of the flesh, things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the, of the spirit. This, is, this is, seems simple. I know it's difficult. But we have to consciously make God our constant companion. Our Holy Spirit is our constant companion. And when we do that, we will be walking in the Spirit. We're not going to have the mind of the flesh. And the works of the flesh in Galatians 21, Galatians 5.21 are evident. And he goes through all these works of the flesh. Anger, 
The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't. It can never do it. Fits of rage, sensuality, immor immorality, all the, all the works of the flesh. And when we keep our eyes on the flesh, we will default to that as a resolution. We don't want to do that. And it's very simple. When you do do that, just, just crucify it, give it to God, and praise Him and move on. And eventually you will work through those things. And we also see in, um, in, in verses uh, 9 through 11, we see God's gracious deliverance for and through Moses and the Exodus. Again, it shows us they knew. God did amazing miracles to deliver them from Egypt, just as he gives us the amazing um, uh, miracle of regeneration by his sovereign grace. You see, do you understand that? See, a lot of times we get a little bit weirded out when we talk about it's all God because then we feel like we're robots. But that's not the case, okay? It's not the case. God chose you. I don't know why he did. Believe me, he chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, right? I am the chiefest. And so I am saying it to you. I don't know. How, 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 why did he choose me, Lord? I'm not gonna focus on the why. I'm just gonna focus on the fact that in rejoice, like in Romans 8, where he goes through the chain of redemption, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to his son. Those he, he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And all of those, we mentioned, we talked a little about this today. All of those are verbs in the past tense. Now, I shouldn't really say that. They're neutral verbs that are always typically used in the past tense. We know that they can't all be in the forward tense. And so even our glorification is something that has happened already in the mind of God. But it's him that does the work. And we must just surrender to that grace. Knowing isn't enough, as we see with the Israelites here. Knowing is not enough. It takes more than just knowing. It takes action, dependence, submission, absolute surrender to Jesus Christ. So what are the major takeaways here? Number one, God's sovereign grace operates as a result of his loving power and loving character to regenerate us, to sanctify us, to impart strength in us in the time of need, which I don't know about you, for me, it's always. Number two, Israel knew that God's sovereign grace was available, as we see in this attempted oath and covenant and all the things that they wrote, but they were focused on their own ability rather than on God's grace. They had the wrong heart. So again, focus on the grace of God in your, when you stumble. Focus on the grace of God when you're going through trials and tribulations. As Paul said, my, your grace is sufficient for me. Okay, I am going to be content with weaknesses, with difficulties, distresses, persecutions, and, and difficulties even. And that pretty much says everything we are going to be content with God. There's no situation that we shouldn't be content for what? For Christ's sake, he died and laid his life down. He owns us now. So we are content with that. And when we are weak, we will become strong. 
We have to remember that when God added the word ha, which is translated breath or spirit, in order for Abraham and Sarai and Sarah to accomplish his will, he gives us the Holy Spirit to appropriate his sovereign grace. We're able to, we're able to take it in because we have the Holy Spirit in us. It flows through us. It flows through us and is always there. We quench it, yes, by sinning sometimes or rejecting the, the word of God, but we still can go to it over and over again. Refuse to make promises to God, knowing this is to trust in your own strength. <clears throat> Keep your eyes off yourself. Keep your eyes off of other people's works. Don't compare yourself to other Christians. Don't compare yourself to other people because that only is going to bring jealousy and envy. It really does because we, it's not really like it's against that person. It's just like we, we're like, I wish I was like that. But God says, no, you're, you're focused again on the wrong thing yourself. Focus on me and know that I made you uniquely for a sovereign purpose. Walk in the spirit and lay your life down as a burnt offering. Now, what if you've never received God's sovereign grace? Maybe this is the first time you're hearing about it. Maybe you're a, a, an explorer or a, you know, a skeptic, or you're just sort of searching out Christianity. Well, I want to tell you that God's grace is found in Christ alone. As we spoke in open today, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth about grace. He is the way to grace. He is the gracious life. He is our life. He's, he's living in us and through us. He made us. But again, you're, if you're a sinner and you hear this word, it is penetrating your heart because God's Holy Spirit will do that. And that's God's way of telling you, come, come to him. So don't worry about the sins that you're knee deep into. Come to Christ and he will free you from those sins. It may not happen overnight, but it will be a journey, a glorious journey, and that's called sanctification. But you must come to Christ. He is the risen one. He rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit dwells in you when you come to Christ to enable you to live the life that you need to live. So that I'm giving you right now the offer of the gospel. I pray that during my closing prayer now and during our worship, you will make that real if you haven't already by having a conversation in your heart with God. Father, thank you for your sovereign grace. Lord, it's really, we don't completely understand it, but we want, we trust in it, Lord. And you've proved it to us so many times and we see it all through your scriptures. I pray that anyone here that doesn't know you would come to you fully, give you their life and trust you and that you would give them your Holy Spirit as a seal and as proof that you've done what you said. You've made them and you've renewed them because of the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.